I told you so. Welcome to this splendid event. I'm Mike Rothschild, Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, and I'm delighted that the school that bears Woodrow Wilson's name has had a part in providing a bully pulpit for this conference on the progressive tradition. Princeton's American Studies program is the other sponsor. To provide background, I give you Sean Wilentz, Dayton Stockton Professor of History and Director of the Program in American Studies. Professor Willens. Thank you very much. Mr. President, <clears throat> President Shapiro, Dean Rosenthal, conference participants, see you out there somewhere, here, right here, beside me on stage. Trustees, students, faculty, and staff of Princeton University, honored guests, ladies and gentlemen. Let me join in heartily welcoming all, welcoming all of you to the progressive tradition, politics, culture, and history, a two-day conference hosted by the Program in American Studies and the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. We gather not simply to commemorate, but to evaluate and indeed at times to criticize the progressive tradition in American politics. We do so in part to mark the centenary of the so-called progressive era, the two-decade period of bold reform that opened the century just past. <clears throat> 100 years ago, next month, Theodore Roosevelt of New York was elected Vice President of the United States on the Republican ticket. Many Americans, including some of Roosevelt's fellow Republicans, were wary of the swaggering young patrician. Mark Hanna, the Republican political boss, called him, quote, that damned cowboy. At best, Hanna and others hoped T.R. would be imprisoned in the vice presidency and his political future would be ruined. As it happened, though, fate, in the form of an assassin, felled President William McKinley in 1901 and the damned cowboy succeeded McKinley to the White House. Thereafter, under the heading of what he called the new nationalism, Roosevelt transformed the presidency into both a bully pulpit, his pet phrase, and a practical lever for social, economic, and political reform. Roosevelt gave way to fellow Republican William Howard Taft in 1908, under the presumption that Taft would continue his reformist efforts. Disappointed by Taft, Roosevelt broke with his party in 1912 and opposed Taft by running as the nominee of a new third party, the Progressive or Bull Moose Party. The Democrats, meanwhile, nominated for president the former president of Princeton University, New Jersey, new Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson. Wilson won the election and pursued his own reformist program, what he called the New Freedom. Over the next eight years, he advanced numerous experiments in both national and international politics. Our conference assembles renowned scholars and specialists from across the generations and from very different points of view. We will devote sessions to the presidencies of Roosevelt and Wilson, as well as to the progressive era's historical and political legacy. Debate and discussion will not, however, be limited to the presidents. To understand progressivism, 
requires coming to terms with the lives and careers of numerous great Americans, including the settlement worker, Jane Addams, the radical, Eugene V. Debs, the conservative, Henry Cabot Lodge, the financier, J.P. Morgan, the civil rights pioneer, W.E.B. Du Bois, and many others. It also requires an understanding of the larger social, economic, and cultural forces that these, all these men and women represented. A century ago, the nation confronted bewildering challenges. The coming of heavy industry had forever altered the American economy and relations between employers and employees. Gigantic private corporations and trusts had become, for the first time, major forces in American life. A huge influx of new immigrants, chiefly from Central, Eastern, Southern Europe, as well as Asia, presented opportunities for some and cultural confusion for others. So did the emergence of cities as the primary residence of most Americans. So did the subjugation of the free sons and daughters of slaves by the cruel regime of Jim Crow. In every facet of life, the old, leisurely America of the Victorian age appeared to be dissolving beneath the hard rain of change, replaced by a richer, speedier, crasser, more cosmopolitan America. And elsewhere throughout the Atlantic and Pacific worlds, imperial crises culminated awfully in the First World War. The leaders and movements of the, of the Progressive Era tried to harness the power of government and of civil society to adapt to these changes and maximize the public good. Their proposed solutions, domestic solutions, ranged widely from trust busting to votes for women to the prohibition of the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages. In foreign affairs, isolationism, realpolitique, and dollar diplomacy each had its advocates as did international idealism. What united Americans was a general ferment of reform predicated on the idea that dramatic action was required to meet the difficulties of the time. In view of this history, it is all the more fitting and exciting that our speaker today has agreed to offer the conference's keynote address here at Princeton. When he last visited the campus in 1996, in conjunction with the university's 250th anniversary, he spoke of the Progressive Era and of Princeton's large contributions to it, not least those of Woodrow Wilson, class of 1879. He also said that he believed the United States was on the brink, and the world for that matter, <clears throat> was on the brink of a new Progressive Era dedicated to solving the national and international difficulties of a post-Cold War world and a globalized economy. And so, beginning with this afternoon's keynote address, we in the program of American Studies and in the Woodrow Wilson School for Public and International Affairs look forward to an intensive two days of discussion about a crucial phase in American history and about its enduring bequest. Now, before I go on, um, a couple of thank yous are in order. You're going to find on the back of your programs a list of acknowledgments of people who have done an extraordinary amount of work, both at the White House and here, to pull this conference together. I want to thank them all again for their exceptional professionalism and vigor. There is one person I would like to single out. Is Ruth Miller in the hall? 
Would Ruth Miller please stand up? Ruth Miller, the assistant dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, got a call from me last mid-July saying, how would you like to throw a conference? She was a little wary, and then I told her what we were going to do, and she said, fine, except that I'm retiring on October 1st. It is now, if you've noticed, October 5th. She actually delayed her retirement for five whole days <laughs> to get this conference underway. Let me say that in the last two weeks, she has done much more than she might have planned on with just five extra days. I'd hope to be able to be joined by Francis Sayre as well. Mr. Sayre, in his 80s, is the grandson of Woodrow Wilson. Alas, he is up in um, uh, Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts, and he is. It's a difficult trip for him to make. But he wanted me to say the following, that I'm sure my grandfather, Woodrow Wilson, would be pleased to know that the university remembers him today, and he would send you all his delighted best. So I thank Frank Sayre for that very much. Also associated very closely, whenever we think of the Progressive Era and Princeton, is a man who could not be with us tonight, the late Arthur Link, who will be remembered, whose name is indelibly associated with that of Woodrow Wilson, not only for his biographies, the volumes of his biography of Wilson, but his extraordinary effort in bringing to completion the papers of Woodrow Wilson. We do have here, however, we're fortunate to have his son, William Link, a great historian in his own right. And I want to find Bill Link, and where is he in the hall? Bill, would you please stand as well? And we thank you and your family. We thank you and your family very much. Finally, I have the rare honor to appear on stage with two presidential successors to Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> Both of whom will be leaving office over the coming months. <laughs> now, we at Princeton, <clears throat> I must admit, have uh, enjoyed a certain advantage in this respect. Namely because the 22nd Amendment to the Federal Constitution does not cover the presidency of Princeton. For those of you who don't recall or who haven't yet taken the right courses, the 22nd Amendment is the one that limits presidents to two four-year terms. Without such a limit, we have benefited from the extraordinary leadership of our next speaker, not for eight years, but for more than 12 years. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to present to you the 18th President of Princeton University, Harold Shapiro. President Clinton, conference participants, faculty and students, friends. On behalf of the entire Princeton University community, I warmly welcome you to this keynote session of the American Studies Woodrow Wilson School Conference on the Progressive Tradition, Politics, Culture, and History. It is more than 104 years since Woodrow Wilson, 
then a member of the Princeton faculty, gave his great address entitled Princeton in the Nation's Service. In that address, uh, Professor Wilson then looked back on more than a century of the university's contributions to our national life in politics, in government, commerce, and the arts. That tradition, beginning with a shy but brilliant undergraduate named James Madison, has, I am proud to say, continued to the present day. And in no small part, thanks to many of you in the audience and here on stage. Indeed, in 1994, I used the occasion of my commencement address here at Princeton to expand Wilson's model, Princeton and the Nation's Service, to Princeton and the Nation's Service and the service of all nations. Our history is long, but thanks to Professor Wilson, who later became president first of Princeton and then of the United States, there has always been a special historical connection between Princeton and the so-called progressive era of the first two decades of the 20th century. As Professor Will Lentz said just a moment ago, a brave reformist era which Wilson did so much to inspire and in part lead. It is especially fitting that we welcome President Clinton back to the Princeton campus to deliver the conference's keynote address. And of course, we are honored to have him here to address us again. During the last four years, I have had the honor of serving President Clinton's administration as chair of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission. Thus, I am especially pleased to introduce them to you this afternoon, not only as the keynote speaker of this conference, but as the recipient of the James Madison Award, presented by the American Whig Cleosophic Society, a Princeton student organization that traces its roots all the way back to Madison. The award will be presented by Catherine Gilbert, class of 2002, and president of the society. I would now like to ask Catherine to join me on the stage. Catherine? Ladies and gentlemen, it is a high honor and a distinct privilege to introduce today's keynote speaker and Madison Award honoree, the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. The American Whig Cliosophic Society, founded in 1765, is the world's oldest college political, literary, and debating society. In activities like debate, model United Nations, model Congress, and mock trial, Princeton undergraduates come to Whig Clio to hone their skill at debating the pressing issues of the day. Our goal is to encourage students to turn that rhetoric into reality, just as James Madison, a founder of the Whig Society, and William Patterson, a founder of the Cliosophic Society, took their skills from Whig Clio to the Federal Constitutional Convention of 1787 and beyond, setting a standard of leadership and service to which we all aspire. To honor this tradition of the past, to recognize the achievements of the present, and in hopes of inspiring Princetonians of the future, the members of Whig Clio present the James Madison Award for Distinguished Public Service. 
This award goes annually to an individual who has dedicated him or herself to the nation's service and the service of all nations, to borrow a phrase originated by Whig Clio member Woodrow Wilson. Previous honorees have included Earl Warren, Golda Meir, Jesse Jackson, George Kennan, and Adlai Stevenson. President Clinton, in his leadership and service, truly embodies the spirit of James Madison. It is my great honor as a president of the American Whig Cliosophic Society, as a Princeton student, and as an American to present the James Madison Award for Distinguished Public Service to the 42nd President of the United States of America, William Jefferson Clinton. Thank you very much. Thank you for the wonderful welcome. Thank you, President Shapiro, for your distinguished leadership here and the vital work you did during the course of our common presidencies. It occurred to me that this might be the only place in America where people thought Woodrow Wilson got a demotion when he was elected President of the United States. <laughs> thank you, Dean Rothschild, and thank you, Ruth Miller, for putting off your retirement so I could come here today. Uh, I want to thank Professor Sean Wilentz for putting on this conference and for his many acts of generosity and kindness and support for our efforts over the last eight years. I'd like to thank uh, the congressman from Princeton, Representative Rush Holt, for coming here. Thank you. I know this is not really a political event, but I can't help noting that Rush Holt is the only bona fide scientist in the Congress, and Lord knows we need at least one. Uh, there, there are not, uh, another member of Congress wanted to come here uh, today, Senator John Edwards from North Carolina, a good friend of mine. His daughter Catherine's in the freshman class, and uh, I promise to give his excuses to his daughter and the rest of you, but they are voting in the Senate today. And, and part of the progressive tradition is showing up. <laughs> and so he's showing up down in Washington. And I thank you, Catherine Strong Gilbert, for uh, giving me this Whig Clio Award. Uh, you know, James Madison is a very important figure to uh, every American and uh, to every president who cares in particular about the framework and history of the Constitution. But it's interesting to me that he actually participated in debates here in the 18th century, including one with Aaron Burr, where Madison was the Whig and Burr was the Clow. It was that debate that produced a memorable line that is too often attributed to me. The era of Whig government is over. <laughs> uh, 
I, uh, I must say, when I first saw the program for this conference, I felt some ambivalence. Uh, the student in me wanted to come here and stay for the whole thing. The politician in me wondered what in the living daylights I was doing here. Uh, I'm supposed to lead off uh, a group of people whose books I have read who know more about the subject I'm supposed to address than I ever will. I can say that uh, I've had some unique experience in carrying on the progressive tradition. I always felt that the work we did the last eight years made us the heir of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, Al Gore and me, our entire administration. And I have a fascination with that period of history. I own a lot of Theodore Roosevelt's books in the first edition, including a fascinating account of how he organized the Rough Riders. And uh, I've also got a wonderful book that Owen Wister, the famous uh, writer of Westerns, wrote about his friendship with Theodore Roosevelt when, like many of you, he was, they were undergraduates together at Harvard. And the other day I acquired uh, Joseph Tomati's book, uh, who, he was Woodrow Wilson's private secretary, about his relationship with President Wilson, both as governor and as president. It's a fascinating account of the time by someone who was admittedly biased but still had a unique perspective. So I've thought a lot about this period. And I suppose as a politician I should give myself the leeway of quoting Theodore Roosevelt, who said in his speech on the new nationalism, I do not speak merely from a historical standpoint. It is of little use for us to pay lip service to the mighty men of the past unless we sincerely endeavor to apply those qualities to the problems of the present. And it is in that spirit that I would like to say a few words today about the progressive tradition, about what it means for today, and how it is part, I believe, of a larger ongoing debate in American history about the whole idea of America. What does the nation mean? What does it mean to be an American? The progressives thought we could only keep faith with the past by keeping faith with the future. Their time had much in common with ours, and therefore our responsibilities have much in common with theirs. To preserve what is enduring, but to adapt our nation time and again to what is new. Woodrow Wilson said, it behooves us once again to stand face to face with our ideals, to renew our enthusiasms, to reckon again our duties, to take fresh views of our aims and fresh courage for their pursuit. These words ring with relevance for your time. Not simply because we stand at the dawn of a new century, as Wilson and Roosevelt did, but because this time, like theirs, is characterized by swift and stunning change. Like the Industrial Revolution, this information revolution is a true seismic shift. It alters forever the way we work, live, relate to each other, and those beyond our borders. The consequences of the digital chip, nanotechnology, the Internet, and the sequencing of the human genome will be every bit as profound, if not more profound, 
than those of the telephone, the assembly line, and the vast migration of Americans to the cities and the opening of America to its first great wave of immigrants. But these are only the most obvious parallels between the progressive era and what I called this time, the last time I came to Princeton, a new progressive era. I also believe in a larger sense the progressive era and this time represent two of the five pivotal points in American history when we have been called upon to reaffirm and to redefine not just the role of government for new times, but the very idea of the American nation. That debate has gone on from the beginning. First, there was the debate which George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and John Marshall won over Thomas Jefferson and his friends about whether we were preeminently going to be one nation or just a little bit stronger confederation of states. I have to say out of deference to Mr. Jefferson that after he became president, I suspect he was glad he lost the argument as he sent out Lewis and Clark, imposed the infamous embargo, and bought Louisiana, which at the time cost the equivalent of one full year's budget for the federal government. Can you imagine what would happen if I came to the Congress and said, have I got a deal for you? Just $1.9 trillion, what difference does it make? The second great debate we had about the idea of the nation occurred, obviously, in the days leading up to and during and immediately after the Civil War, when Abraham Lincoln saved the Union by moving it closer to the true ideals of the Declaration of Independence, and as Gary Wills has so brilliantly argued, literally redefining the Constitution closer toward those ideals in the Gettysburg Address. The third great point was in the Progressive Era, when Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt presided over an America fully entering the Industrial Revolution. Then the fourth time was during the New Deal, the Second World War, and its immediate aftermath with the dawn of the Cold War, when Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman gave us our first comprehensive social safety net and an institutionalized commitment to American leadership for peace and freedom in the world. Now, at the dawn of this global information age, Al Gore and I have been working to adapt all of the domestic and foreign policies of the United States to these sweeping changes in science and technology, in social diversity and pluralism, and in increasing global interdependence. History has taught Americans not to stand passively in the face of change. What the progressive presidents understood so clearly, from Teddy Roosevelt to Wilson to FDR and Truman to Kennedy and Johnson, is the understanding that America either will shape change or be shaped by it. As I've already said, I believe the time in which we live bears the most resemblance to the progressive era. 
But there are also elements of those other great hinge points in American history in this time, too. You can see it in the fight we had with the Republican Congress that led to the shutdown of the government. You can see it in our efforts to build one America across all the lines that divide us. You can see it in our struggle to end genocide and ethnic cleansing in the Balkans and to build binding ties to Africa, Latin American, and Asian nations with whom we have not been closely aligned in the past. The central lesson of the progressives is that you either have to shape change consistent with your values or you will be shaped by it in ways that make it more difficult for you to live by your values. To retreat from responsibility is to invite instability. To embrace the obligation of leadership has consistently, under progressive times, led to better lives for all Americans. Wilson and Roosevelt made an enemy of outdated orthodoxy, replacing them with what Teddy's famous cousin Franklin Roosevelt called bold, persistent experimentation. As many of the scholars here have argued, and doubtless will argue with greater clarity than I can, the progressive legacy is not primarily a set of programs that no longer have great relevance to us, but a vital set of principles. The idea that new conditions demand a new approach to government. When Teddy Roosevelt became president, few Americans looked to him, to his office, or even to their government to solve their problems. At the end of the 19th century, the White House was weak. The Congress was at the mercy of special interests. Roosevelt's genius was to redefine the role of government and the role of the president to protect the public interest and to act as an accountable agent of change. This is an ideal as old as Madison. But Roosevelt and Wilson gave it new meaning for a new era. What is its meaning today? When I ran for president in 1992, our government was discredited. In fact, you could hardly run for president unless you had something bad to say about the government. Indeed, part of the political genius of the ascendancy of President Reagan and his associates was to attain power by discrediting the very idea of government. They basically were able to say things like government couldn't run a bake sale, the government would mess up a two-car parade, and they found huge majorities of Americans sort of nodding their heads. Those in the progressive tradition, I believe, had given them some ammunition by clinging to old programs, bureaucracies, and approaches that no longer worked. Then the conservatives used the failures as an excuse to do nothing on the domestic front. Some of our leaders literally made a virtue of their endless capacity to tell the American people how bad the government was. And then when those who were reacting against the progressive tradition took power, they seemed determined to prove it by digging us a huge budgetary hole, quadrupling the nation's debt, 
in 12 years. So our economy sank, our society became considerably more divided, and predictably, public confidence in our democratic government collapsed. That's why when I ran in 1992, I said that it would be necessary to change our party, change our national leadership, and change our nation. Al Gore and I believed that we had to find a new way, something now popularly called around the world a third way, a way back to enduring values, a way beyond a government profoundly indifferent to people's problems, a way forward to meet the challenges of today and tomorrow. We committed to reinvent government so it could function as it does best in an information society, as a catalyst, a partner to the private sector in creating opportunity, jobs, and hope, and providing our citizens with the tools they need to make the most of their own lives. That, too, of course, is a principle as old as our republic, opportunity for all. And whether we're talking about the information age, the industrial age, or the turn from the 18th to the 19th century, economic growth and opportunity have always grown, gone hand in hand. That's why we set out to build an economic strategy that would work for this time, rooted in fiscal discipline, investment in our people and our future, and expanding our economic ties with the rest of the world. Well, lucky for us, or I wouldn't be here talking today, it's worked out pretty well. We've gone from record deficits to record surpluses. Our economy has created 22 million jobs. We're in the midst of the longest economic expansion in history. But in the progressive tradition, to use President Kennedy's words, the rising economy is lifting all boats. The Census Bureau reports that in the last year, typical household income rose to the highest level ever recorded, breaking $40,000 for the first time, up since 1993 by $6,300 after inflation. The poverty rate has fallen to 11.8 percent, the lowest in 20 years. Senior poverty is below 10 percent for the first time ever. Child poverty dropped by the largest amount since 1966. Hispanic and African-American poverty are the lowest since separate statistics have been kept. Since 1993, 7 million Americans have moved out of poverty, over 2 million last year alone. Now, a century ago, economic growth was generated by large industrial organizations, popularly called the trusts then. Today, economic growth is largely generated by big ideas, which is why there are so many young people like you making a fortune in dot-com companies. The antitrust provisions and worker protections that were developed in the progressive era to make the economy work and to give more people a chance to share in it still matter today. And they have been built on, modified, and changed, but they still matter today. But today, we need even more focus on boosting ideas and, and innovation, creating the conditions for prosperity, and again, giving everybody the tools they need 
to succeed in a very different and in some ways much less organized world. You can see our efforts there in this, for example, in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, where the Vice President and I fought for the E-rate so that the poorest schools and hospitals and libraries could all afford to be hooked into the Internet, and where we fought for a framework that favored competition from new companies over giving all the business of the new information economy to existing big enterprises. Again, it's worked reasonably well. There are hundreds of thousands of new jobs, thousands of new companies out there, and it's an example of how we tried to change the laws and the framework to meet what was best for opportunity for the largest number of Americans and to give all of our people, especially our young people, the tools they need to take advantage of the age in which you live. So in that sense, the nature of opportunity, a constant value, is changing. At the time our nation was founded, opportunity most of all meant the freedom to carve a farm and an existence out of the forest frontier. In the industrial age, the progressives saw that it meant something different. It meant a high school education, a vocational training, preserving competition, protecting American workers from abuses, and keeping children out of the workplace when appropriate. Today it means mastering new tools and technologies, being able to think broadly, adjust quickly, and being able to keep learning for a lifetime. This morning, for example, at the White House, I met with House and Senate Democrats to push the Congress again to adopt our educational proposals because I think they are more than ever before at the core of the concept of opportunity and at the core of our ability to keep changing and building an ever more progressive society. Even though we've balanced the budget these last eight years and run a surplus and we've eliminated hundreds of programs, we've also doubled investment in education and training. More than 10 million Americans this year will take advantage of the HOPE scholarship and lifelong learning tax credits. We reorganized the student loan program and saved students $8 billion in student loan repayments since 1993. We raised the minimum wage, an old tool that I think is still very important in new times, and I hope we can raise it again before the Congress goes home. But we took a new tool, the Earned Income Tax Credit, and doubled it so that it's helping this year alone 15 million families to work their way into the middle class. We adopted an empowerment zone program that the Vice President ran so ably, which has enabled thousands of jobs to be created in communities that otherwise would have been totally left behind in this economic recovery because they were remote or poor, because they didn't have people with a lot of skills that were well suited to the trends of the times. We created community development financial institutions to get capital to people who couldn't go into a normal bank and produce a record that would generate a loan. We also did as much as we could to try to help people move from welfare to work and to take maximum advantage of the new economy by investing in education, child care, and transportation, recognizing that we live in a place where very often the pool of available workers is here, usually in a city, and the pool of available jobs at their skill level is here, usually in a suburb, usually with no public transport in between. 
to try to help people balance work and family, the United States began to join what most other industrial nations have been doing for years by adopting the Family and Medical Leave Law, which now over 20 million Americans have used to take some time off when a baby's born or when a family member is sick without losing their jobs. And I'll just predict to you, all of you young people out here, this will be one of the big debates over the next decade because we're the best country in the world at keeping the hassles of starting a business down, providing capital to start businesses, providing an environment in which people can flourish. But we lag, we lag way behind a lot of other nations in the progressive tradition in simply saying that the most important work of any society is raising children and that work will be more productive if people who are working, who have kids, don't have to worry about the welfare of their children. That's why we have to do more for child care. That's why we should expand family leave. That's why we should work more on flexible leave. When I became president, only three million people were making a living primarily in their own home. When I ran for re-election, 20 million people were making a living primarily in their own home. By the time you vote in November for the first president of the 21st century, we may be up to 30 million people who, I don't have the latest figures, but it's stunning. Part of the reason is technology makes it possible, the internet makes it possible, but part of the reason is we haven't done as much as we should have to help people succeed at society's enduring work, raising children, and all the new work we're doing, and the fact that more people than ever want to work or have to work and ought to be able to do so. I am very glad that more and more Americans are sharing in our prosperity, but the other thing I want to say is that still a lot of folks have been left behind. Most of them live in inner cities or small rural towns or on or around Native American reservations. And one of the big challenges now to, to sort of perfect this progressive movement is to figure out how to bring those people into the circle of opportunity. I hope very much that before I leave office, the Congress will pass the New Markets Initiative that I've worked on with the Speaker of the House in a bipartisan fashion. I won't go through all the details, but essentially what it says is we ought to give wealthy Americans with money the same incentives to invest in poor areas in America we provide to invest in poor areas around the world because we believe that we can do this, and we ought to put the infrastructure there. For those of you who've never been on an American Indian reservation, let me tell you just for example, on, at the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, one of the most historic parts of American history, the home of the Lakota Sioux, who were the tribe led by an Indian chief named Crazy Horse that dispatched General Custer in the late 19th century. The unemployment rate is 73%. I was at uh, Shiprock in northern New Mexico, one of the most beautiful places in our country the other day, at the Navajo Reservation, where the unemployment rate's over 50 percent. Seventy percent of the people don't have homes, telephones in their homes. I was introduced by a young woman who won a contest, an academic contest at her school. The prize was her computer, and she couldn't log on to the Internet because there was not a phone line in her home. In our country, at our level of wealth, that is unconscionable.
And this cannot rightly be called a full progressive era until we have addressed these challenges. We still have to be constantly, restlessly searching for ways to expand the circle of opportunity. This, too, is a principle rooted firmly in the progressive era, but also in our nation's founding. Remember what the framers said. They were committed to forming a more perfect union. They never said the union would be perfect, that we would ever reach complete harmony in our living with our ideals, but that we had a constant, endless, lifetime obligation to perfect the union. And if I could leave any of you with a thought that I hope you will have in your mind, as you as citizens go to the polls and then as you as citizens build your own lives, it is that we get a chance like we've got today maybe once every 50 years, maybe even more seldom, where we have both prosperity, social progress, coupled with national self-confidence in the absence of serious crises at home or threat abroad to really imagine the future we would like to build and then go about building it. And in my view, one of the most important things we have achieved is not any of these specific things people always talk about, but just giving you the chance to build the future of your dreams. And I hope that decision will be made consistent with the values, the vision, and the record of the progressive era in America. Theodore Roosevelt said, the people have emphatically expressed their desire that our principles be kept substantially unchanged, although, of course, applied in a progressive spirit to meet changing conditions. That's what you have to do. I just want to make one other point that I think is of equal importance. I believe that in order to preserve a new progressive era, we must go much further than we have in our own national consciousness in understanding that our continued prosperity as well as our security requires us to continue to be involved in the world, to lead in the world, and to cooperate in the world. Almost a century ago, Woodrow Wilson described a vision of collective peacekeeping, global security, the rights of nations against the backdrop of the looming threat and then the fact of a brutal, modern, all-consuming war. A war that is difficult for young people to imagine. In one European battle in World War I, 900,000 people were lost because they had modern technology and they were stuck in old patterns of fighting digging trenches and shooting each other and moving up line after line after line that might have worked fine if they'd had bows and arrows or even Civil War era rifles and cannon but was an absolute disaster when modern technology was married to old ideas both geopolitical ideas which led to the war and the ideas of military strategy with which it was carried out you should remember that today. 
and try to make sure that the ideas you have are equal to the technology and the realities of modern life. When Woodrow Wilson painted this idealistic vision, few of his fellow countrymen and women listened. A lot of people thought he was an idealist who passed his prime. And after he was no longer on the scene and the reaction prevailed, as it always does after periods of progressivism, as Professor Schlesinger has told us in the, his writings on the cycles of history, we had to learn in a very hard way that America could not safely or responsibly withdraw from the world. Now, we've had two Cold Wars and a long and bitter Cold uh, two World Wars, excuse me, and a long and bitter Cold War. We live in a time when new democracies are emerging around the world. When you walk out of here, if you turn on CNN, you'll see the emergence, I hope, in Serbia with a lot of young people like you fighting for the future you take for granted. More people live under free governments of their own choosing today than ever before. For the first time in history, more than half of the people on this planet live under governments of their own choosing, throwing off the yoke of oppression. Many of them, but not all, are also enjoying newfound prosperity. We are closer than ever to redeeming the vision of Woodrow Wilson, of reaching his dream of a world full of free markets, free elections, and free peoples working together. But we're still not there. And there are a lot of obstacles in the way, not least of which is the continuing bedrock of reluctance in our own society to pay our fair share and do our fair part on the part of some conservatives and on the part of some progressives to embrace the change that is the global economy and shape it instead of denying it and pretending as if we were Luddites that we can make it go away. And you have to think about this. What does it mean for you, what Wilson said and what Roosevelt said? They understood at the start of what has been called the American century. Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman understood when they committed the UN, created the UN and NATO and the Bretton Woods institutions that the United States simply cannot be partly in the world dipping in when it suits our purpose, hunkering down when it doesn't, that we can't relate to our friends in fits and starts, we can't lead just when it suits us, and then tell people we're too busy when it doesn't. We have not made that decision yet. You can see it in the ambivalence the Congress has felt when they supported me on NAFTA and the World Trade Organization and bringing China into the WTO, and when they wouldn't go along with giving me the same trade authority that presidents have had for nearly 30 years now, 
to negotiate comprehensive trade agreements with other countries and have them voted up or down. You can see it in the fact that a strong conservative bloc in the Senate and in the House have actually spent eight years demanding, as the eight years, the most prosperous years in our country's history, saying that the most important thing to do at the UN is to lower America's share of peacekeeping and lower our percentage of the total dues of the United Nations. You can see it in the breathtaking and I think horribly short-sighted defeat in the United States Senate of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, the first major treaty to be defeated since the Senate defeated Woodrow Wilson with the League of Nations Treaty. And I must say that for my country's sake, I certainly hope it doesn't have a like consequence. And I don't think it will if the American people decide that these matters are important. We live in a time when people have lots of opinions on lots of things, and they're absolutely flooded with information. So if you took a survey in America and you said, should America pay its fair share to the UN? Should America responsibly participate in peacekeeping because other people share the load? Uh, should we have the comprehensive test ban treaty and have a cooperative approach to reducing the nuclear threat and other threats of weapons of mass destruction in the future? You'd get big majorities that would say yes. But most Americans don't understand how important this is and what a significant piece it is of building a new era of progress. And so it doesn't tend to be a voting issue. And whenever important new things are not voting issues in a free society, then entrenched old interests tend to prevail and we get in trouble. So, I ask you all to think about that. The challenges of this new century are far more diverse than our predecessors could have foreseen. But all the good things that we have don't make all the bad problems go away. Information technology will not resolve all conflicts between nations. Indeed, it creates some new challenges. It enables, for example, networks of terrorists, narco-traffickers, international criminals to communicate with each other with greater speed, clarity, and often with less chance of being caught. New technology allows people to imagine weapons of mass destruction that are made smaller, just like computers, encapsulated, uh, encased in small plastic containers that don't show up on airport metal detectors that present new threats in the ongoing historical battle between the organized forces of destruction and the organized and sometimes not so well organized forces of civilization. So for all the good things that are happening, we can't make all the problems go away. Therefore, the expansion of global commerce, the growth of democracy, the rise of other centers of economic activity does not diminish our responsibility to lead. It heightens it, and it requires that we do so in a more cooperative fashion. As American interests evolve, I believe 
we can stay rooted to the principles of Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt. I think we stay true to those principles when we change. For example, I think we're being true to the principles of the progressive era when we provide debt relief to the world's poorest countries. It's unconscionable that these countries are making interest payments that are often half or more of their annual government budgets instead of spending the money on education and health care and the development of their nations. And they can't pay the money back to us anyway. Why are we doing this? It doesn't make any sense. So we have a new idea. Don't just give uncritical debt relief. Give debt relief to countries that can demonstrate they're not putting the money in Swiss bank accounts, are building military or other instruments of oppression, but only putting the money into education, health care, and responsible development. That is, in my judgment, a critical component of progressivism in a global age. Just as I think it's important to fight maladies like AIDS, TB, and malaria, those three things claim one-fourth of the lives that are lost in the world every year today. One-quarter of all the people who will die in the year 2000 will die of AIDS, TB, or malaria. And we have it within our power to do something about it and also to lead the world toward the development of an AIDS vaccine and to make the drugs more widely available and to do more about TB and malaria. We ought to do that. In an interdependent world, we'll be better off if people who are plagued have their plagues alleviated. We ought to do more, in my judgment, to support poor villagers in remote countries by giving them loans so they can start businesses and build a self-sustaining life to reinforce democracy and, and to build from the grassroots up countries that can be good partners with us in the future. We ought to do more to insist that a more open economy also be a more fair one, or in the common parlance, to put a human face on the global economy. We also stay true to the vision of Wilson and Roosevelt when we do our part to keep the peace and to support brave people struggling for the quiet miracle of a normal life, whether they're in the Middle East or Northern Ireland, in a small place like East Timor a long way from here, in a poor country like Haiti, or a country plagued by narco-traffickers in civil war like Colombia, and especially in the Balkans, where the First World War began. There especially, the fight for freedom should still be our own. Freedom has made steady advances in Bosnia and Croatia and Romania and Bulgaria. And today, as I said earlier, in Serbia, where a decade ago the forces of destruction began their march across the Balkans. Now the march of freedom is gaining new ground. Yesterday the Serbian police went into the coal mines and refused to fire on the coal miners. Today in the parliament building there are, as I said, thousands of young people like you and not so young people like me standing up there saying they want their country back. They want to be free. They voted and they want their vote respected. The people of Serbia have spoken with their ballots. They have spoken on the streets. I hope the, air is, the hour is near when their voices will be heard and we can welcome them 
to democracy, to Europe, to the world's community. And when they do, we will move as quickly as possible to lift the sanctions and build the kind of responsible partnership that the people there deserve. We have made the world, I believe, more safe against force and selfish aggression. But we know, like Roosevelt and Wilson before us, that no peace is lasting unless it is backed by the consistent, dedicated leadership of nations that have the wealth, size, and power to do the right thing. Here in America, and in more and more nations around the world, progressive parties are in power. Every now and then we all get together and have dinner and try to help each other. And we try to figure out how to keep this going. How to keep up the fight for reform, for justice, for opportunity for all, for freedom. I believe that the continuation of this legacy in our time depends as much as anything else on whether we actually believe in our common humanity and the primary importance of acting on our increasing interdependence. There's a fascinating book that's been published in sometime in the last year, I think, by Robert Wright called Non-Zero. Some of you have perhaps read it. Uh, the title refers to game theory. A zero-sum game is one that in order for me to win, you have to lose. A game like a presidential election. A non-zero-sum game is one where in order for me to win, you have to win too. And Wright attempts to make a historical argument through all the tragedies, travesties, brutalities of human history, including the gross abuses of science and medicine under the Nazis and the gross abuses of organization under totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, he attempts to prove Martin Luther King's moral assertion that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. By arguing that, we are consistently growing more interdependent. And that the more interdependent we become, the more we are forced to look for solutions in which, in order for me to win, you have to win too. Non-zero-sum solutions. The whole idea of the progressive era was that everybody should be treated with dignity. Everybody deserves certain minimal things in life that the power of government should be arrayed against private power so that individual people who were equal under the law all had at least a fair chance at life. In this era, I often say in my sort of Arkansas way that everybody counts, everybody ought to have a chance, and we all do better when we work together. That's what I believe. And that, I think, is an enduring truth of the American dream, going back to the founders, going back to all the voluntary societies that de Cokeville chronicled so eloquently almost 200 years ago. In this time, we can have a progressive era that outlasts the one you came here to study. 
if we are faithful to its values, if we understand we have to change even more rapidly and perhaps even more profoundly than they did, and if we acknowledge that a precondition of true independence in the old-fashioned American way in this very new age is having some humility and compassion and understanding of our interdependence, which is founded on an acknowledgement, an acceptance, a celebration of our common humanity. That, after all, is what led to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. It's what led Abraham Lincoln to lay down his life to hold the country together. And it's what gave us the progressive era, the sense that we all mattered, that we were all connected, and that we were all entitled, each in our own way, to have a chance to play a part in the endless effort to create a more perfect union. The progressives have been important to America. They have redefined the idea of the nation in ways that were sorely needed. But you are in the middle of what could be the longest and most significant progressive era in American history. I ask you to study the one that happened before, but to fully live the one that is unfolding before your eyes. Thank you very much.